This week, we speak with Avi Duglin from Bounce Security. In the news segment, we play with the consequences of legacy logins, peruse web shells, look for API patterns, prescribe patching, and more. Stay tuned for Application Security Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production. It's the show to learn the latest tools, techniques, and processes necessary to understand DevOps, application security, and cloud security. Your trusted source for the latest application security news. It's time for Application Security Weekly. With 84% of cyber attacks targeting the application layer, securing your software is more challenging than ever. Synopsys enables DevSecOps with a portfolio of industry-leading tools including Coverity, Black Duck, and Seeker to help you build secure, high-quality software faster. Synopsys is the leader in application security testing. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash synopsis to learn more. The question is simple. Have any of the systems on my network been compromised? The answer is harder than it should be. Enter AI Hunter. Active Countermeasures has automated and streamlined techniques used by the best pen testers and threat hunters in the industry to create AI Hunter, a network threat hunting solution that does the first pass of a hunt for you to identify systems that are most likely to be compromised and scores the results on a scale from 0 to 100. You can then research those systems in depth with AI Hunter. Focus your valuable time on the systems that need your expertise with AI Hunter. Sign up for a personal demo today at securityweekly.com forward slash ACM. Welcome to Application Security Weekly. This is episode 105, recorded April 27th, 2020. I'm your host, Mike Shima. I'm here with Matt Alderman. Hello, Matt. Good morning, Mike. What a wonderful day. Pretty wonderful day. Hopefully it's uh, getting bright and sunny and you can uh, and warming up out where you are. Oh yeah, we're going to get back up into the 60s finally. We might even hit 70s this week. Better than all that snow we had a couple weeks ago. <laughs> Only yeah, it was just a little week, few weeks ago too. But we've also got uh, John Kinsella. Hello, John. And I think we don't no have audio. audio for John. But we do I'm have them. So I'm, those trying to be all, I'm trying to be all oh, careful and let you guys be, do your thing. Yes, hi guys. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, John. <laughs> thank you for this. Thank you for coming with audio. We have officially migrated our mailing list back to our original platform. We apologize for any double mailings or lack of mailings that you may have received in the interim. We have our categories nailed down and you are now able to customize what you receive from us based on your preferences by visiting securityweekly.com slash subscribe and clicking the button to join the list. Once you have joined, you will be able to go back and update your interests so that we can grow with you as you progress through your journey in InfoSec. Going cloud native? See how to integrate application security in our next webcast with Signal Sciences. Learn how penetration testing reduces risk in our May webcast with Core Security, a health systems company. Register for our upcoming webcasts or virtual trainings by visiting securityweekly.com slash webcasts. You can also access our on-demand library of previously recorded webcasts and trainings by visiting securityweekly.com slash on-demand. Each webcast will earn you one CPE credit that we will submit on your behalf if you provide your ISC squared number. Avi Duglin is a prominent security architect and software developer with decades of experience leading development teams and building secure products and protecting complex systems. He enjoys researching efficient security engineering, usable security, and scaling enterprise security systems. He founded Bounce Security to focus on bringing his own brand of efficient software security to a wider range of technology companies and software developers. Mr. Duglin is a frequent trainer and speaker at industry conferences such as OWASP, RSA, B-Sides, and InfoSec, as well as developer conferences such as O'Reilly, DevSecCon, PyCon, and DevOps Days. Hello, Avi. Thank you for joining us. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. I should point out O'Reilly at this point is kind of, you know, of blessed memory. Well, hopefully you'll give us some memories in uh, this segment, because one of the things we'd like to dive into is one, one of the 
foundations of AppSec, which is threat modeling. And, and just one of the things that stood out to me, um, just as I was going over your bio, is that not only have you spoken at industry conferences, so security industry, obviously, but also developer conferences, which is probably smart because developers are the ones writing code. So as we let, let's talk about threat modeling, and as we do that, like kind of interesting to starting off, what's that conversation look like, or how is it different between those two audiences? Yeah, you, you raise a really good point. Um, you know, I like to start with the fact that uh, um, you probably heard Jim Manico quote, um, all software engineers are security engineers, whether they know it or not, or whether they like it or not. As you say, they're the ones building the software. Uh, it is different because they come from a different perspective, a different, uh, different set of needs. Um, so, you know, you've talked to security people and they're kind of, you know, more conservative, they're more defensive. They want to make sure we've thought of everything. We want to make sure that everything is as safe as it possibly can be. And you, developers need to get the feature done. They need to roll out new features all the time. They need to be producing more value for the software, right? They need to uh, put out uh, another version on the next sprint. And that's what they're focused on. And if you say, think of everything that could possibly go wrong, that's a different kind. You're, you're speaking a different language here. Um, so for developers, I like to talk about what they need to care about. What they need to care about is whatever feature they're building, whatever value or whatever their goals are. And the security is th the threat modeling that I want to offer them for them to do themselves is to basically to put guardrails up around whatever it is they're, f they're building to make sure that what they're building is safe, what they're building is done right. Not to think of every possible attack because they can't do that. That's not their job. I mean, I've seen places that have tried to force them to do that, um, and their success has been rather, um, well, um, hopeful in nature, shall we say? Yeah. Plus, I my guess, Avi, is under the way we develop applications now with distributed teams, a developer doesn't know the end-to-end application anyway. So how could they think of all the different guardrails, right? You have to kind of scope it based on what they're working on because they may not know the other pieces that are involved in the application itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many pieces. Uh, the most developers developing a microservice right now, they kind of know the context that it's being used in, but it can also be used by some in some other context. They know who's supposed to be calling them, and then two weeks down the line or a year from now, a different set of microservices will be calling their microservice. Have they given thought to all that context? Probably not. Maybe DevOps folks have done that. Maybe the architect have done that, has, has looked at that. Maybe not. And you can't have that entire uh, full set of context at all point because that is constantly, constantly changing. Right. So it, part a lot of that brings up what to basically how to guide that conversation, if you will, with the developers. And last week we had a good discussion with uh, Rebecca Deck talking about threat modeling and going using like a feedback loop to build up policies and standards that developers should be following. Um, and we talked about some articles about different approaches to threat modeling. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, Avi, you know, especially as to, to Matt's point, it's, it, it can be really hard to have a full mental model of the entire end-to-end -end system in your head. And as you rightly point out, um, the system assumptions can change, especially in a microservices architecture when there are new services interacting. So do you tend to lean on something like Stride or Dread, which is a bit more of, Rather than have to think of all the things that can go ba bad, here is some spoofing, some tampering that, that Stride kind of nudges you along. Or you also mentioned kind of focusing on the value uh, of, of what they're building or kind of a, maybe a value-driven threat modeling. What, what's your approach to asking questions for this? All right. So you, uh, yeah, I mentioned a lot of stuff that I want to unpack there for a bit. First of all, uh, I'll start from the middle. Dread is dead. <laughs> okay. Dread is dead. Uh, there's a lot of other uh, more common uh, risk grading methodologies that are more interesting. The OSP has the risk grading methodology. Uh, there's a few others out there. Um, I definitely do like to rely on, Stred, on Stride. Um, mm -hmm. It does give good, uh, a good framework for developers to understand the types of things that can go wrong, the things that they should be looking at. Um, but I don't necessarily, you know, whereas as a consultant, I might come in and do a full stride matrix for every single component in their, in their data flow diagram. 
I don't necessarily expect that from any developer that's developing, you know, a three-day microservice. They're not going to be doing all of that as possible. Mm -hmm. um, instead, I give them what I call, you know, value-driven threat modeling. I want them to focus on the value, and I want them to understand what needs to go right. Okay, this is a lot different from the way security people like to think about things, right? It's like a bit more of a positive spin, um, but I want them to focus on the value, what needs to go, what needs to happen for things to go right. And to do that, yeah, so my model, uh, you know, if, you, if you're familiar with Adam Shostak's uh, four-question framework, uh, what are we working on, what can go wrong, um, what are we going to do about it, and did we do a good job? Uh, some of this, you know, I, I kind of pivot those four questions for developers, and I say, first of all, why? Why are you building this, this user story over that user story or this feature instead of that feature? Why are you building it right now instead of three months down the line? Usually there's a pretty good reason. And if you talk to your product managers or the product owner, they'll usually have some good reason that this is what will give us the most benefit, the most value, uh, whether it's more eyeballs or selling more product or whatever it is. So that's the why, you know, what we expect to get out of this feature. Uh, secondly, um, if you, um, I go uh, after the why, how things need to happen for me to get this value. You know, what is the happy path? What needs to go right? And when I understand the happy path and also the unhappy path, we'll be explicit about that. I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, when I understand how it needs to happen, we can talk about what I need to do to ensure that the user stays on that happy path. Or what, you know, what I need to do to make sure they go to the unhappy path if necessary. Um, and this, this talks a lot more to the developers in their own language. These are the things that they like to, to, to talk about. And these are the things that they deal with in their user story. Uh, a couple of years ago at the OSPA or the Open Security Summit, we took the user story format, right? As a user, I want to uh, buy juice so that, uh, you know, my kids can drink juice in the morning. And we said, you know, can we come up with a very catchy little something? And we said, without, as a user, da, 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 without having my credit card being stolen. So that gives like a small little thing to plug into the way the developers are already working, the way they're already developing their user stories, just one small little change that's very natural. There's not a lot of detail there, and that gets fleshed out in the conversations later. But this helps plug into the way they're working, helps them uh, kind of... Uh, focus on the value of what they're doing. So we have the why they're building it, how it needs to happen, and what I need to do for it to go right. And this kind of brings us, bring the developers back always to what they need to be doing, what guardrails they need to be putting up to get what they expect to happen. And one other thing that you mentioned before was about assumptions. That's a big thing that I push uh, for developers. Mm -hmm. You're always going to have assumptions, right? But if you don't write it down, then the next person doesn't have the same assumption. And the only one that finds your assumptions is the attacker. So if you're explicit about your assumptions, you can either validate that in code, or you can document it for the next person down the line, or the next time your microservice gets used in a different context, they can go ahead and verify those things, maybe out of, out, uh, offline. But the assumptions can be validated one way or the other. And that helps bring back all the things back to the guardrails around the value. So especially, uh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, you, you use a very interesting <clears throat> concept, Simon uh, Sinek's uh, golden circle, the why, the how, the what, yeah. which is what we try yeah. to teach to security companies to try to convey their message. You just use the same framework for the developer. I thought that was a really interesting uh, yes. use of that because I've never seen it used in a developer context. I've always seen it in more of a marketing context. The funny thing is that I actually uh, kind of came to that. I, I, you know, I read about the uh, Simon's uh, uh, golden circle in the past um, and kind of put it in the back of my mind. And I don't know, a year or three years later, I started talking in that language already anyway, um, because focusing on the value again, it came from the marketing context, because if you know, your value, you can build towards that. And it just really picks up very well for developers also. It plays very well for developers building user stories and features. And some, some point, at some point, uh, somebody said to me, are you talking about Simon's like Golden Circles? Like, oh, I guess I am, but I didn't even realize that. 
Oh, very interesting. One, one, one of the interesting things um, that is that was missing, and this will be a bit of a leading question, was the the how did we do aspect though. Um, so, because one of the important things of even just engineering, building software, or thinking through um, threat modeling or risks, and should we put time and effort into addressing this particular risk? Or if we have two risks, which one, how do we prioritize among them? Um, or, or, you know, what are the opportunity costs of not doing one? So if if I were to say, well, that fourth question of the, you mentioned like Adam Shostak's, like, how did we do? That seems to be missing from that three question model, but is it really, or how, how would you respond to that? I'm really glad you raised that because how do we do a super important threat modeling? Did we find all the threats? Is our understanding still the same? Did our should our diagram change now that we've gone through this threat modeling exercise? Um, are there, is there still residual risks? Have we introduced any new risks? It's super important. But here's the thing: if we're not talking about it in a security context, we're talking about for developers, whether they're doing agile or or DevOps or CI/CD they already have that retrospective built in. They already have that QA built in. They already have that phase of review built in, whether it's design or code, everything gets reviewed already anyway. So because I'm, I'm saying, let's not put threat modeling as something separate, but as part of the development design, part of the actual software design, then that just gets picked up on the way and not introducing any new steps there. That makes sense, yeah. And then, Part of that too, then also looping back is just you're talking about that, you know, the circle and for marketing. How do you bring this message either to developers themselves or to like, you know, bubble it up to the CISO level or expand here is the value of doing threat modeling or perhaps asking, asking this a different way. How do you convey what you've threat modeled or, or demonstrated, you know, some artifacts from it? So the cool thing is because I'm saying we should be doing it as part of the development life cycle. You know, I'm not saying we should rule out bringing in people like Adam or, you know, Tony or whoever it is, bringing in the experts to do their full-size stride or posture or whatever it is, do a full-size threat model, especially if, you know, you're Fortune 500 or an international bank, you need those things. But what I'm talking about now is having developers build a threat model as part of their software design. The only artifact I care about is running code. So... If you define threats that need to be mitigated, the list of threats is not important. For documentation, for assumptions, that's important. What's really important is the mitigations that you implemented. Doesn't matter if you designed it and didn't implement it, what matters is the code that you wrote, that you're creating more secure software. And that's what it really comes down to, right? The documentation is great for validation, for pen testers, for auditors, that's all fantastic. But what really matters is what you built, what you roll out into production. And I assume some of what you build, right, from that user story also turns into a set of tests to validate and regression test against some of those assumptions as well. So that I'm not only, it's not only the code I produce, but it's also probably some of the test cases I produce to validate the software, yep. not only as I build it, but as I continue to maintain it um, every iteration. Yeah, absolutely. But again, we're talking, it's just, it's the features. So it's not something separate that we need to call in an external pen testing firm to validate this for us. The QA people, are, the QA folks already need to be doing this as part of their security, uh, as part of their regression testing. Security testing is part of that. And security requirements are requirements. So I'm basically trying to break doing down it, those right? walls. Sorry? <laughs> I said, at least we hope they're doing <clears throat> it. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> that, that's the plan. So yeah, Avi, I've got... Um, I really like this. I, I like this a lot. Um, but one of the questions that's sort of popping into my head is, have you seen doing this type of methodology, um, does that work better in some orgs versus others? Because my sense is this requires a little bit more, a little bit less belief in checkbox compliance, a little more uh, executive buy-in that... Um, we really care about security. We want to do the right thing. Does that does that resonate with what you've seen, or do you see this working better in larger or smaller or certain type of organizations? Yeah, absolutely, exactly what you said. I would even go further and say um, it's not just about not in checkbox uh, places, but um, in organizations that the CISO understands. That is the software developers that are building the code. As I said in the beginning, they're the security engineers. You have to trust them. 
Sure, you want to give them tools. Sure, you want to do validation. You want to put a lot of stuff in there. But if you're doing checkbox, the checkbox Olympics, and if you're trying to do command and control structures, that's just not going to work. I first started running through this a few years ago um, when we tried building an agile SDL. Uh, we're talking, you know, 10, uh, probably more, 15 years ago, maybe, uh, before Microsoft came out with their agile SDL. People tried rolling in a standard waterfall SDL on top of agile development, and it kept blowing up in their faces. And realized you need to be able to trust the developers, give them the tools, give them the training, give them the process and the headspace to be able to do this. Most developers, you know, the good developers, the ones that you want working for you anyway, will be able to do this anyway. They'll be able to do this if you give them the tools for it. So excuse my sniggering that a uh, um, checkbox Olympics is one of the better phrases I've heard in a while. So I had to write that one down. Um, <laughs> that's not mine. <laughs> that's I'll still, I, I won't quote you on, but I'll, I'll, I'll still take that. It's a great <laughs> phrase. Um, so, okay. So we, we agree on that. Now he, here's the, the core question behind it. How do you help get those CISOs or whoever is in that? Um, Cause it's not always a CISO, right? That's frequently a political position, but how right. do you get um, that executive buy-in to realize, Hey, we need to do more than just a, check go. So it's actually two almost opposite conversations I have sometimes. Depending on the organization, the uh, the head of development might be a lot more uh, into this than the security folks. And the security folks are saying, no, the developers can't do this. I need to do it. And you know what they say, you know, all threat models are wrong. Some are useful. I'm okay with the people from wrong. Yes, it will be wrong. It'll be wrong no matter what. So they'll build a wrong threat model, but it will be useful because you're getting more secure software, more so this way than the other way. And again, I say, you know, you want to do the full scale stride, pasta, uh, whatever kind of uh, uh, consulting driven threat model you want to do, go for it. I think that has use too. But that does not scale as much as having the developers do that as part of their process. Yeah, I think it's hard for security folks to realize that the future of security is embedded in the developers and the application. It's not controlled by firewalls and, and network devices anymore. And, and that's a leap of faith that is hard for some security professionals to get over. But that's the world we're moving to as everything moves into this you know, application cloud environment. The, the developers are the core components of, of how security is going to get built if it's going to get built at all. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there, I cut. Did I get cut off? No, keep going. No, go no, ahead. go ahead. Oh, just just the video got cut off. Um, I was going to say, you know, a lot of places uh, try and fight the developers into security, and that's just that's just too much friction. That just does not work well. That does not. That's not going to end well either. Yeah, I think the, the way I would look at that is sort of like trying to say, look, hey, coming from the security team perspective, hey, developers, here's the OWASP top 10. Just don't do these things. Don't have these bad things happen. Whereas <laughs> it's uh, the other way you could approach that is say, oh, by the way, here's an ASVS or maybe even the OpenSAM to help you developers to understand what you actually should be doing. Or maybe here's how to have a framework for how you're building software. Because it's a lot easier to tell you know, to give people a framework to work against rather than just say, don't make mistakes and walk away. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, when I advise, come into a company and I advise the security leaders, I tell them, you need to be a partner. You need to be a supporter. Come in and advise your developers what they could be do better. Give them advice. Give them tools. Absolutely. Don't fight them because you're going to lose. So, and that's interesting. So when you've been doing that, um, kind of looping back to what my early question to, how has it been, how have you approached, or I guess, let me say it this way, how have engineering teams responded to those simple three questions, you know, and are there ways, do you, could you walk us through perhaps an example of um, things to avoid or just some ways just to help engineers, you know, become self-serving in that manner, self-service? Yeah, and it really comes back to the earlier question of, of what kind of organization. It does not work with all organizations, that's for sure. It needs to be, you know, if I go into a bank that still runs their security on mainframes and, you know, the security team hasn't changed in 20 years, I know that's not going to work. It needs to be, you know, developer-led organization, at least the technology part needs to be developer-led, uh, focused on what their actual value is and not just regulations, okay? So if they can have a coherent case around why we're building this, you know, what their value is, then those questions make a lot of sense. 
and then they talk, you know, with sense around those guide the guide rails that they need to put up. They can come up with their assumptions that they need to do. And you know, sometimes I'll do workshops and uh, we'll do Socratic questioning. You know, a lot of different types of questions of mm-hmm. is this true your assumption? And you once they pick that up and start questioning themselves and each other, it, it goes a lot faster because they can p- pick up all these. Um, these all these implicit assumptions that nobody actually bothered verifying, and then the, you know sometimes in the middle of the workshop they'll get this whole list of oh I checked that that's not true oh yeah that's not true either um, I just went and uh, I stepped out and and you get all these things and they start thinking in that way about is this true are these assumptions valid can I validate them can I test around them um, and that is really, just really comes back to the basic things that they should be doing anyway. They do their happy path. You know, you come into a, a developed user story. They describe the happy path. And I'm saying be more explicit. Put guardrails around the happy path. Be explicit around the unhappy path. And these are things that a lot of times you'll see anyway. I'm just saying, saying just do a little bit more about being explicit about protecting that value. And again, this is nowhere near a full-size stride matrix. It's it's not good enough. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I could come in and, and I'm sh- I have no doubt that within three hours, I'll find dozens of, of stride threats. But that's fine because they're doing it. This way to scale is getting them to do the, the basics. And by having them do it and think about it themselves, it means each iteration of them going through this process, they're going to get better and better, not only on what's not real, but some of the things that are potentially real that they have to address. So that learning themselves kind of creates this a good loop for them to continue to refine and get better every time they do it. Yeah, absolutely. And you're asking about, you know, pitfalls. And that's one of the the biggest pitfalls I see that people, especially developers are scared of getting started. It's like, I don't know all the threats. How am I going to think about that? That's fine. I'm not asking you to know about everything. I'm not asking you to put together a perfect threat model. Just get started. And each time, each iteration you go, you'll get a little bit better. And are you leaving a lot of threats on the table? Sure. But you have, you're already starting, you know, if you get a consultant to come in or the security team comes in, they're already starting at a pretty good baseline and not three miles below the floor, mm. which is most often our problem nowadays. <laughs> well, and I like, one of the things I like is that you want, you're going out to developer conferences to, you know, have these discussions, speak to developers. And you're really talking about that, um, emphasizing the developer first approach in, throughout this particular um, discussion we're having now. Um, and for those mm-hmm. listeners, um, or for those who are listening and perhaps aren't seeing the video, um, obvious sporting a pretty cool OWASP Israel shirt. Um, so I'm <laughs> curious, uh, uh, kind of along this vein, um, OWASP obviously um, has great meetups, you know, throughout the world world and all kinds of communities um, for typically AppSec or security people to show up to. Have you gotten developers to come to your OWASP meetings as well? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. So the uh, OWASP chapter holds the yearly AppSec Israel uh, conference. Uh, Well, not this year, obviously. Uh, We usually hold it around September, you know, tail end of the summer, beautiful time to come to Tel Aviv. So it's on for next year. Um, You know, we have a really great mix. I think last year we had around 850 people come, uh, and this is a free conference. Uh, first day we have developer training, basics of security, you know, secure coding, and things like that. Uh, we usually get two to 300 developers come to this, uh, and to the conference day itself, usually cl- close to half are developers. Um, so we have wow. a great mix of really deep security research, as you'd expect in Israel. Uh, mm-hmm. But we also have a lot of, I wouldn't call them one-on-one talks, but very, very, very much developer-oriented talks of how to implement things uh, the right way and design and threat modeling and and things around code and and DevOps and a lot of things like that. So it's a really great conference, by the way. You know, if you happen to be in Tel Aviv next year, definitely worth coming to. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely have to be checking the 2021 calendars, I think, for everyone. Yeah, um, but, but that still is a great, I, I love that that fact that you're bringing the developers to the conference and attracting them because it, it's much better than that echo chamber of reminding everybody else of what the threat modeling is. Here's the four question model. Here's the three question version and uh, so on. And actually going back to who's actually writing the code. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you know, the four question framework is great for some teams, 
Some mm-hmm. teams that don't have that are not that well integrated are not going to have a strong security team, uh, security champion involved in doing this. That's why I say let's go in a slightly different area. Uh, and when it comes to AppSec Israel, uh, somebody once told me most security conferences are about blinky lights, hacky hacky. That's great. AppSec Israel is about building things the right way. Very boring gray boxes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you, you've been talking quite a bit about, and you know, and, and John brought this up too, of like, does this fit for all organizations or how does the approach change for different teams? I'm kind of curious too, because OWASP also has the um, Open SAM project. How would you, does, does that relate strongly to here or is there a good way to tie that into this type of discussion so that organizations can kind of figure out where they are on this particular maturity model? Uh-oh. Oh, uh, that was the that was the one question that, that Avi couldn't handle. I think we might have um <laughs> had, had a blip on it on his on his audio. Um we'll wait another couple seconds. Nope, but, I'm still um, here. Otherwise okay, perfect. Um so I'm if sorry. you did hear the question, it was about um open yeah. Sam. Yes. I, I heard it. I started talking, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so I was saying I love the open Sam. It's a great project. Uh, the latest version actually changed quite a bit. Uh, a part of what they changed in the in the last version was a lot more developer team oriented and less security uh, consultant around the the developer teams, and I think that's great because it's very useful tool now for developer for developer teams. You still need a security champion or somebody to really mm-hmm. be able to drive it and to understand, but they can easily take that a- and plug that in. Um, I've been doing some experiments around uh, OpenSAM with Wardly mapping, which shows kind of a, a, an evolution of security maturity um, using basically the same concept of OpenSAM, but being able to graph that and seeing the movement of evolution. Um, you know, Wardly maps is a great tool. Probably don't have enough time to go into that now. Um, but yeah, it's very interesting to, to think about how to build an AppSec program around the maturity of OpenSAM. Yeah, that's interesting. And I've only just, uh, I haven't ever you know, generated and worked with Wordly Maps directly, but I was reading up on them. And um, from what you were just saying, too, that sounds like an approach perhaps, you know, a, planning out a, an AppSec program or planning out a um, secure security development lifecycle. So your audience then perhaps becomes more of the CISO for that, at least when you're starting. Does that sound about right? Or, you know, how would you suggest someone also approach Wordly Mapping or or having this discussion with, um, you know, going into an organization. So I'm far from a Wardley uh, expert, uh, and you know, there's you know, take it from Dennis Cruz, uh, got me into mm-hmm. Wardley Maps for security, uh, much bigger expert than I am. But I'm seeing, I am seeing it, and there's something that they talk about a lot uh, that it's great tool for collaboration, for getting people on the same page. So, for example, it's not just to go to the CISO with a Wardley map. But to get the, the CISO and the VPRND at the same table to talk about what is important and where to focus, because we can't do an AppSec program all at once. We can't roll it out to everything. So where's the most important parts? Where are the parts where we're going to get the most value from? That comes back to value-driven. You know, it's, it's, I'm consistent. <laughs> You're, yeah, you're definitely consistent. Whatever marketing <laughs> background you may or may not have had, that um, you're, you're definitely exercising well. <laughs> <laughs> And I want to give you another chance, speaking of a, of a marketing background, um, over the next couple of months, is there anything that you wanted to highlight, anything you'll be working on or um, uh, you, you wanted to, to share with us? I don't know if you're referring to anything specific, but um, the next couple of months, we're going to be working on getting over the uh, current situation. I'm sorry to say <laughs> sure a lot of people That's are having a lot harder time than I am right now. Um, <laughs> my office is always attached to my house, so working from home is standard operating operating procedure for me just have more kids around um yeah five that's why i drink at night (laughs) um yeah (laughs) i see somebody rolling eyes (laughs) we drink all the time what are you talking about avi it doesn't have to be (laughs) night Oh, well, that's wonderful. Well, especially for being as busy as you are, I want to thank you, Avi, for spending some time uh, with us and giving us definitely a, a good and different perspective on a way to go into value-driven threat modeling. That's really neat. Thanks for having me. Cool. I want to say Glad thanks to again to Avi. Thanks to uh, Matt and John. And thanks to everyone who's been listening. We're going to take a quick break and then we are going to return with News of the Week. 
Signal Sciences secures the most important web applications, APIs, and microservices of the world's leading companies, protecting over 7,500 applications and 150 billion production requests per week. Signal Sciences NextGen WAF and RASP help companies increase security and maintain site reliability without sacrificing velocity, all at the lowest total cost of ownership. Signal Sciences patented technology protects any application against any attack with integrations into any DevOps toolchain. Signal Sciences, demand more from your WAF. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash signal sciences. As the world of software-driven everything becomes a reality and development cycles speed up, sales teams are taking a new approach to application security, one that enables security teams to scale by empowering developers to integrate security into their development workflows and toolsets, all while giving security teams the visibility and control they need. Sneak helps software-driven businesses develop fast and stay secure with a developer-first solution that seamlessly and proactively finds and fixes vulnerabilities in open-source libraries and containers. Learn more and see the solution for yourself at security weekly.com forward slash sneak. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. I'm your host, Mike Shima, joined by Matt Alderman and John Kinsella. We are looking for high quality guest suggestions for our Enterprise Security Weekly podcast to fill our upcoming recording schedule. We're committed to educating and providing entertainment for the InfraSec community, and we would love to hear from you about who you would like us to interview on the show. Submit your suggestions for guests by visiting securityweekly.com slash guests and submitting the form. We review suggestions monthly and we'll reach out to you once reviewed. Join us at InfoSec World 2020, June 22nd to 24th, now at Disney's Coronado Springs Resort. Security Weekly listeners save 15% off the InfoSec World main conference or World Pass. Visit securityweekly.com slash ISW2020. Click the register button to register with our discount code or the schedule button to sponsor a micro interview. And that brings us, uh, Matt and John, to uh, the, the news of the week. Uh, one of the top of the list, and not too coincidental that I've been playing a little bit of Animal Crossing myself, but uh, Nintendo confirms breach of 160,000 accounts. Now, we always drop in breaches, and there were other breaches in the news related to, once again, Elasticsearch being open. Um, this one was a little bit interesting, and I wanted to highlight because it was actually, um, per the article, in the legacy authentication endpoint for this. And it just kind of highlights one of those aspects that you can have a strong new service, a new API being developed, but if you're not paying attention to that legacy and accruing that tech debt or accruing, call it security debt as well, um, then unfortunately, you may have that may come back to bite you in cases just like this. Yep, having uh, old endpoints sitting around. I mean, luckily, this was only 8% of their user base. Um, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, because I think they have like something like 20 million users or something like that. So it wasn't a full disclosure. It was just like 8%. Right. 8%. And um, again, too, for one of the things that whenever we bring up uh, Microsoft vulnerabilities, one of the things that really hurts them is that um, call it either legacy support or backwards compatibility. It uh, just makes things extra difficult, as we're seeing here in the, just in the Nintendo example. Yeah. I have to say, I was a little happy. This was one of the first large, well, medium-sized dumps which have come out in a while where I never had a Nintendo account. So it's a, it's a breach where my data isn't in there for once. <laughs> yeah and, and i don't think my son my son uses the he has the switch so i don't think he's in this one either because i don't i i think the games he's playing is not using this old endpoint so yeah this was for older like a th the older 3ds system so yeah. should be fine on the switch no worries there um, one of the other articles, also sort of on a, on a theme of vulnerabilities, was um, an article talking about the, the NSA had published some um, guidelines or guidance on uh, web shells. And this is a bit of a reference back to, um, we talked about web shells back in episode 95, I believe. So it was back in February, um, which feels about 20 years ago by now. Um, in this case, it is a couple um, 
examples of how to look for or com common co concepts of how to look for particular web shells, whether it's going to be um, file integrity monitoring, anomalous requests, things like that. So uh, this article and the, the, the GitHub repo that it points to, um, they're pretty simple approaches, I would say. They're more of here's how to review for a single web server or a single web application, as opposed to a fleet of them, or the, the, these techniques don't necessarily, you'll, you'll run into scaling problems, I guess is what I'm getting to here. Um, but it still is nice to see a mix of both looking at PowerShell tools. Um, I mentioned Splunk, I mentioned some, this using grep, um, so kind of a point of inf interest for those of you um, curious about how web applications are compromised and then post-compromise exploitation and data exfiltration, for example. Yeah, I, you know, I, I was going through this list because we've seen some of these attacks, you know, like WordPress plugins and those sorts of things, right, that, that creates one of these common cases. But there's also some interesting ones. Obviously, the, um, you've got SharePoint here, you've got... Um, Adobe in here, Microsoft Exchange Server, right? So it's it, it's not always just you know things like your your WordPress website. There are other ways to create these these same kind of uh, vulnerabilities and attacks. That's a great point, and and you know that that list, especially what you just rattled off, is a lot of enterprise software, and especially now um, with much more work from home, remote work, um, that call it Beyond Corp, Zero Trust, et cetera, there's the potential for these to be exposed to the internet. Now, obviously, the, the idea that you're exposing them is that you're building better client trust and how the authentication is happening and so on. Um, but you still need to have some monitoring and some logging uh, on those server-side endpoints just to make sure that you can actually detect and respond when something goes bad. Yeah. And if you're using all the Splunk queries, then Splunk will be happy because paying a bunch of money for Splunk. <laughs> the, the PDF that uh, the report those guys have out is, it looks pretty good. The first four pages, um, you know, cover what we sort of talk about week after week, like, you know, how to secure, what should you be securing, what should you be looking for. A little more operational side, I guess, than, than the ASW. But um, it's a pretty quick read for, for those who want to come up to speed in this type of thing. Yeah, not not quite as long as the what was it five hundred page plus uh, reading assignment we gave you a couple weeks ago with the Google <laughs> SRE book. So yeah. we'll go easy on you this week. We'll end the month that way. Um, speaking of which, before we go into, for example, some some design patterns and APIs here, here since we're talking about working from home, um, Matt, you, you you flagged an interesting article about um, uh, how productive software developers are or reportedly are right now. Yeah, I, you know, this. I was doing my research for Business Security Weekly, which is later today, and I ran across this article. I go, this is an interesting one to cover on Application Security Weekly because it's it's a survey of 324 developers um, to kind of gauge some of the concerns during work at home and in this remote work environment. And I thought some results were interesting. Nearly one-third of software developers, 31%, say working during a pandemic has them feel, they feel less productive. Now, mm -hmm. I know in the case of Paul, that's not true. Paul is cranking code like crazy because um, he's having like a field day in, in the office by himself with Johnny. He's just cranking code. So he's not less productive, <laughs> but in general, people feel they're less productive. Um, and then it talks about the work hours, right? One in four say they're working later hours, while 33% are working longer hours. And, and I can see that. Work at home creates some very interesting shifts in your uh, work behaviors, right? You, you might be working later, but you're also typically working longer. You don't have a commute now. It's a lot easier to sit in your office and just go, right? Um, so these are trends I would expect. Um, and, and with those, you would think, if they're working longer hours, they should be more productive, but they feel less productive. So I'm, I'm curious, Mike, uh, are you less or more productive these days? <laughs> well, considering there's three of us on the podcast, one third of us at least has to say less productive. So, so I'll, <laughs> I'll take the fall and say I'm less productive. But um, it, it is pretty true that it is definitely harder to be equally productive, I will say, which is the same way to say less productive. Part of that is a little bit just when we're talking with Avi and you know having those threat modeling discussions, it's, it's harder to have a um, richer discussion that is free flowing on a 
video chat, for example, because um, and, and everyone, you know, attentive listeners may notice it, it can be a little bit harder to interject. And every once in a while, you're, you're stepping on someone else speaking and you don't always get those visual cues or some of those quieter verbal cues that someone's about to talk. So it does put a lot more, um, especially if you're, you know, on the security team and you're kind of trying to moderate a discussion. There's a lot more effort that goes into moderating those discussions, as well as it's just a lot harder to have those, um, you know, before lunch, after lunch, afternoon coffee kind of chats about whether it's work related or for that matter, not work related, just building the relationship with that dev team, DevOps team, um, security. So those things are definitely missing. Um, but on the other hand, there's a lot of, you know, uh, tools like Slack um, make it really easy to stay in touch. And there's a lot of documentation that's being written. And I will say there, I I'm not a fan of documentation for documentation's sake, but but if you're putting something together that's concise and focused or you're throwing an agenda into your meeting, I think that can make that time a lot more efficient. And that way, if you are feeling less productive, maybe then you can take some of that mental space and just say, you know what, here's my strict barrier that 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. rolls around. And in fact, it's actually time to stop working rather than stay tethered to um, your particular laptop or your desk or your working area just because you're only, you know, more than five or 10 feet away from it um, after hours, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're professionals, by the way, and we're <laughs> the three of us still have to figure out how to, you know, interact together. Can you imagine a video call with with dozens of people on it. It it yeah. It it's really hard to interact. Um, yeah. Well, you sort of see it if, if either of you guys have done those. Um, and and one of the tri one of the tricks to uh, um, if you're trying to get your word out on this type of in a meeting like this, you just learn to talk over other people, like I just did to Matt. Um, but one of the things <laughs> one of the things where I've seen these the larger groups is when like you know if if you're doing like a happy hour a Zoom happy hour with your buddies and there's like ten boxes on your screen. Um, yeah, that that gets sort of difficult. I can't imagine being in a large um, meeting at work. I mean, I guess the all hands you just go into a broadcast mode. But um, yeah, I don't know. The, the big thing for me is not so much at least what I figured out over the years working from home is is not so much the interaction with other people is not that bad. But for me, it's figuring out what point in the day am I most effective? When can I really actually get stuff done and not start trailing off into la la land? Um, and usually for me, it's either really early morning or really late at nighttime. Middle of the day tends to be, I guess, between meetings and then just like all sorts of, you know, things catch my eye. So that's sort of, once I figured that out, that's where the best thing is for me to, to focus on, um, or to get the focus that, that helped a lot. Yeah. The only good news out of this survey is only 10% of developers are worried about running out of toilet paper. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, that's because probably most of them have all these stacks of outdated textbooks anyway. So yeah. <laughs> that's why you have a bookshelf, John. It's, it's in case you run out of toilet paper. <laughs> that's why it's empty now. <laughs> it's called threat modeling. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of working from home, though, um, there has been some positive aspects. So I, I did flag one, um, uh, both GitHub repo and um, streaming um, cast that Maddie Stone did. So this is someone, she is a, um, I work at Google, and she did a online live stream, which is recorded now, um, for about Android app reverse engineering. Um, so if you have some spare time and you just want to learn about more about Android app reverse engineering, both her GitHub repo as well as the live stream are great resources. Um, I think some of the stream was a bit cut off, so she will hopefully go back and re-record some of it. Um, but that's a great resource for learning. She does give a shout out to uh, Amanda Rousseau, Malware Unicorn, for those of you who follow her on Twitter, um, who's done also just more general reverse engineering labs like this. And um, if you're also continuing to be interested on the attacking aspect, um, we've mentioned um, Azaria, Azaria Labs, who has done both um, online resources as well as some tutorials on ARM. Um, for ARM exploitation. So there are a lot of resources out here that um, if you feel your mind, uh, you know, wandering off, trying hard to focus on something, perhaps dive into one of these because they're very well presented and obviously they're very important and good aspects of application security. And yeah. you never know, you might get some bug bounties to offset, you know, some of your other um, work activities. Yeah, very, it, very it seems like there's there's a bit of a, a trend going around. Um, this is an older one, but I, I didn't throw it in the notes because I, I I thought it would have been 
past tense, but uh, Microsoft's what a bit over a year ago did a, a really great write up on FinFisher. Um, mm. And I think a lot of us probably looked over it at the time, but it was it's another of these reverse engineering papers, but it's talking about reverse engineering a little more modern than like some of the older um, stuff from a, a decade or so ago, but how they had to actually go through and reverse engineer malware that had its own uh, virtual machine in it. So um, maybe we'll add that into notes as well. At this, All this type of stuff I love. It's, it's super cool, that whole cat and mouse thing to me and, and being able to reverse this stuff. It is very cool. And then, you know, I... We'll we'll find this application security angle to it, but you know, speaking of Nintendo and emulators, there's also a lot of interesting reverse engineering that's gone into uh, a lot of video games, both to patch yeah. long-standing, you know, 20, 30-year-old bugs so that people could complete um, particular levels or even fix particular uh, graphic hiccups. So um, we'll have to throw together. We'll have we'll we'll find some way to to work this in for sure. Um, and speaking of bug bounties, um, bug bounties are always going to be, well, I, maybe not profitable, but bounties to be found uh, because developers are writing code and those code has have bugs. And in this case, I came across a um, article or uh, article from NCC Group about code patterns for API authorization problems, um, or possibly these are basically preferred design patterns to better approach API um, authorization um, models. And it stood out to me because that's an area that's harder to automate um, uh, from a black box perspective. Um, you can automate it to a degree from your QA team, from your development team as they're building tests because they understand what those assumptions are. So there's our assumptions callback from our discussion with uh, Avi. But um, this was pretty cool. And, you know, it, it uh, it, it pulls. It calls out four different patterns: an ad hoc pattern, which I honestly see quite a bit, a route based pattern, a centralized pattern, and an object based pattern. Um, the centralized and object based, I think, I just personally have seen a bit more of. And regardless of these, the the three approaches other than ad hoc, a lot of them really, you know, one of the underlying themes is you have to pay attention and continue to maintain them because they go stale over time. And just as the, the, the Nintendo article showed us that you can have a nice centralized model, but if you don't centralize all of the things, meaning pulling up your legacy APIs, you're still going to have some of those crusty areas of code and be paying a bounty or uh, suffering from a breach. Yeah. What is, so yeah, it's, it's same as you, Mike. A, a lot of this sort of resonated with me. What I was trying to do is I, as I sort of reread this this morning, and I, I still haven't quite wrapped my head around it, but I'm trying to think through this article from the point of view. When I, look, when I look at this right now, I think about, usually I want to try and pick one of those patterns at the beginning of a project, right? I'm, I'm used to smaller mm -hmm. or newer projects, not something that's 20 years old. Um, but I'm trying to take a step back and think, okay, I've come in and I've got this mess of two or three of these different patterns. How do I take this article and actually... Um, it's not giving hints, and that's not what it's trying to do. It's just talking about the patterns. But what's next up? Once right. you recognize those patterns, how can you sort of boil them down and focus into one or two of them? Um, I think that's a good something for people to think about. It is, and you 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 kind of I think kind of leading into the aspect. Of, one of the, the the recommendations it makes at the end is you know start with a simple design, match the use case. So it's not saying here are four. This is the best for this. This is best for this. Just choose one or recognize one that's beginning to emerge from your design discussions, from your architecture. Um, but then also make sure it can scale. And make sure it can scale is a, a bit of a hand wavy, is sort of saying make sure it's secure. Because it does take a lot of experience, a lot of insight to figure out what does it mean to scale? And is it scaling based on traffic, like queries per second? Or is it scaling across the number of multiple services it needs? Or is it scaling across the complexity of the authorization grants or your, your user population. Um, so it, while I think that's a great recommendation, it does, um, uh, it, it definitely covers or papers over a lot of important questions that are specific to what you're actually building. But I will say the other one that is um, the recommendation down at the end is keep the logic auditable so you can easily identify places where the auth um, might be missed or bypassed. And that also kind of, I think, speaks more to what Avi was saying when you're capturing the these discussions from threat modeling exercises, rather than just filling out checkboxes, putting that in a doc and filing that doc away, 
try to either document within the code or make the code, you know, part reflect what the outcome of those or concerns of those threat model uh, discussions have been. Um, again, it's a lot easier to say than to do, but I think that one particular recommendation really also stood out and resonated with me. Well, the other thing is, this is the point where you need to have a valid QA check as part of regression testing to make sure that it's not missed or bypassed, right? We've talked a right. lot about our internal uh, test that we now have because Paul bypassed authentication, right? And so <laughs> that's a really good way to also validate this last assumption is have good test cases in place to look for where authorization is missed or bypassed so that you catch it and it doesn't become an issue in your code later. Yeah. And so that speaking of missing stuff and it doesn't become an issue in your code later, there's another article that I pulled about about uh, the the health prognosis prognosis if I can get that word out, sorry, of Internet of Medical Things. So this is IoT for the medical space. And I like this article because it was um, calling, you know, repeating what we possibly initially are already going to say that you know, there's out-of-date code or code is poorly written or code hasn't been well-tested for these um, devices. But it does, it has some interviews or some quotes from John Corman, or Josh Corman, sorry, from I Am The Cavalry. Um, and he's been in this space quite a bit. And he has some good quotes that one is also getting rid of what can also be a common misconception or perhaps a mythology within security community or the IoT community that, if you have patching any of these devices means they have to be completely go through an entire accreditation process again. And um, his point is it's saying addressing security flaws isn't really changing the intended use of this device. So it's not like saying that just because you have a flaw that needs to be patched means you have another multi-year process to go fix that device. Um, so that's a little bit of a canard or a false flag or false concern. Um, when talking about the security of medical IoT devices. I, and this is not just medical IoT devices. This is all IoT devices. There's a, whole, yeah. there's a whole class that falls into this realm of the same basic uh, security issues, right? Now, the focus is on medical because we're talking about a lot of people supposedly you, you know, in, in, in hospitals right now and all these medical devices. But, but this proliferates well beyond just medical devices. Yeah, I think the other thing that stood out to me here too is that, you know, it's one, it, it's it's easy to highlight medical devices because you can focus more on the, the risk when something goes wrong. But there's another quote too here is that stepping back a little bit and doing a threat modeling, if you will, is that a lot of the these hospitals, the healthcare providers, um, obviously, yes, they're not, they don't have really good network segmentation. There's a lot of, you know, risks around these devices, but they're also dealing with ransomware and phishing and other very common, very basic attacks that aren't unique to either IoT or the healthcare space for that matter. So it's not to also so it's also to say we need to have to put these into perspective about where would we invest a lot of our efforts and, and wh or where do we know where do we know where some gaps are to figure out where security budget needs to be spent. I think one of the things I'm having a hard point with with this article, um, and we touched upon this a little bit when we had Tim Mackey on from Synopsis, what, as you're saying, Mike, I think this is ages ago, probably February, um, <laughs> feels like five years. But so, I mean, the, the question in my head right now, and, and I was asking some of the OWASP guys this last week, one of them, what the, their, they've got a new paper out around um, IoT as well. What is an IoT device? Um, mm -hmm. it, in this article, they start talking about Windows 95 and XP, and I'm like, how do you call that IoT? I call that a device on a cart that you know you bought twenty years ago, um, and you haven't replaced. <laughs> yeah, and it's not and that, that. That's okay. I mean, that's um, that's a, a problem that needs to be taken care of. But it seems like everyone's just doing a big old bear hug and calling it IoT. Um, mm. To me, IoT, and I think I need to go looking for a, a, a you know a NIST definition to go and back me up on this or something. But I think of it as a, a lightweight, smaller device, usually. That's either a sensor or something like that. That is, um, it still has all these problems we're talking about. But I think once you sort of categorize it and put it like that, um, it it allows you to uh, 
uh, address or think about this problem in a, mo a lot more focused manner. Because when you think about everything from the, the crash cart with Windows 95 to the Fitbit or, you know, whatever the coolant is on a um, uh, patient in ICU nowadays, you know, that 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 allows you to bring that range down and have a lot more, I think, a better conversation about it and start fixing problems which exist today. Because uh, I think the problems which an IoT developer in 2020 are dealing with how do you patch things? How do you do all these things we're talking about? Um, that can be focused on a lot tighter if you leave that the noise of, oh my God, Windows 95 out of it. So I, I think that's it, it helps in some form and, and makes the article a little bit longer, but I, I would really like to see people focus down on that a little bit tighter. IoT is yeah. defined as the new cool embedded device. I mean, you think of it as an embedded device. That's the way I think of these things, right? It is a, a set of chips that have software components and some hardware chip components, but not your traditional operating system, typically, uh, that are communicating via wireless, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, whatever, right? You know, that's how I kind of classify these devices. When you think about the ones in the medical area, you've got pacemakers and all kinds of other of these types of devices that are vulnerable. You've got... Uh, Imaging equipment for CAT scans, MRIs, all kind of fall into this because they may not have a traditional operating system in them. They might, but they might be uh, – the way they work might be a little different. So, you know, to me, this is really an embedded device issue mm -hmm. more than it is a traditional operating system issue. And so I'd like to see the two kind of – each one can be addressed slightly differently, but each one has its nuances. Yeah, and that's what I was getting back to with um, – with, so I'll, I'll remember now when I engaged OWASP on a CSA list, they are releasing um, a version of um, GOAT for IoT. Um, and they had no Bluetooth support, but they were talking about SQL injection. If if your IoT device is vulnerable to SQL injection or cross-site <laughs> scripting – and again, you know, I, I love I love OWASP. We just had those more of those guys on. We had them on last week. We 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 love everything about them. Um, but this is I I think we need to you know I don't think it's nuanced. I think it's a little more needs to be a little bit better structured. But um, yeah. Anyways. Yeah, and I think, and I'm going to have to to find out because I, I want to say there is a NIST um, standard or NIST recommendations that I had come across that was talking about specifically patching the TLS um, setup, um, the, also the um, la not having a default password or having a you know random random password per device. Uh, so we'll have to find that out. Or those of you listeners who are shouting at your uh, device, listening to us as, as we say this, uh, please please let us know. Send an email, send a tweet, ping us on LinkedIn so we can uh, throw that in the show notes or talk about it in one of the upcoming shows. Um, and I did, um, I'm struggling to get a good segue here to the, to the final article I had, um, but I did pull out one article that was ties back to a little bit of the threat modeling, but more about handling postmortems and um, incident response. And I've mentioned a couple times in the, in the past few episodes, um, as the theme of this episode is, you know, years ago, it feels like. Um, but about the the idea of a blameless postmortem, and this article I linked to, I think helps clarify a little bit about what blameless actually means. It doesn't mean without consequences, um, which I think is important. Um, but it also says focus when you're doing a postmortem or a bug happened, and this bug caused you know uh, it impacted the traditional triad of you know confidentiality, integrity, availability of a system, or if you want to go into stride or something else, you know an incident or a breach occurred. Um, focus on are you identifying a flaw or can you identify a flaw that happened where the process failed the person or did the person not follow the process or was there a lack of tooling? And I think this helps call out exactly what it means more speaking, what, what it mean more when it's saying a blameless postmortem and a postmortem that is focused on diving in, taking responsibility, saying something bad happened. In other words, rather than that threat modeling question, what could go wrong? Something did go wrong, so now you're answering that fourth question of how did we do? Or in that discussion with Avi, that normal development feedback cycle, what happened, how can we fix it? Um, so, so for that matter, I thought this was a pretty good article, um, not too long, and um, especially as we're all you know, working in a distributed model, a postmortem document that's nice and clear and uh, structured like this perhaps um, can help in, in these types of scenarios. And we have a perfect example of what not to do. Ready? 
We sincerely apologize for any inconvenience caused and concern to our customers and related parties, according to Nintendo. In the future, we will make further efforts to strengthen security and ensure safety so that similar events do not occur. Yeah. You know, th- this is... <laughs> This is actually really important to me. It's it's at, at previous orgs, I've I've really tried to push for that blameless, um, you know, just retrospective. If you're not, if an organization isn't actually looking and, and learning, and they're just going, okay, cool, we're back up, let's keep going. That's a really bad thing. It's like if you don't stop and go, how can we improve to make sure this doesn't happen again? Yeah. Wow. At that that's. Um, that, that that's an unfortunate situation to be in. I've seen it, unfortunately. Um, and I think sometimes people really want to do it, but they're either afraid either culturally or whatever reason. But, you know, it you need to get folks in a room or on a Zoom or whatever have you um, and say, hey, we're not, there's no blame. No one's going to get fired. We're not going to look badly upon you. We're not going to make you wear the, I don't know, the polka dot shirt. Um, I guess that's good in, in Tour de France, but uh, <laughs> we want you just to, you know, how can we make this better? How can we all learn from this? Um, I, I really wish more orgs did this. It, it's, yeah. Yeah, and, and we've seen a couple of these very positive examples publicly um, posted as well from everyone from, um, off the top of my head, Twitter's done this. Um, I believe Netflix has, Cloudflare, Google. So these are very common names that people have heard about. And already, if you know these, you know these large organizations or medium organizations, if they're going to have flaws and talk about it in healthy, constructive manners, um, very much to your point, John, it's you know we should be having these conversations soon and early about what went wrong and how can we fix it. Um, so with that said, uh, John, Matt, I want to say that I take your um, uh, co-hosting here very seriously. And um, I don't want to cause any of our listeners any inconvenience, um, but I do hope that they'll join us next week. So um, thanks, Matt. Thanks, John. Uh, Thank all of you listeners. We'll see you next week on Application Security Weekly.